A funny thing happens as you get better at sight reading music. Your eyes move ahead of your fingers and your mind starts occupying two places at once. It takes a lot of practice to get used to it, which makes sense given that you're untethering your consciousness from space and time. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music played by sight reading, music played through memorization, and sometimes music that we just play by ear. You know what's cool? Being a totally independent podcast and making exactly the show that I want to make, and that's only the case because I am supported by so many wonderful listeners over on Patreon. So, there's a link to my Patreon along with PayPal for one-time donations in the show notes. Thanks to everyone who's signed up so far. On this episode, musical answers to many of your musical questions, including some follow-ups from the most recent mailbag that I did a couple of episodes ago. We've got inhaled vocals, disguised horn sections, and a hand drum that sounds like a moose, so let's crack some envelopes, collate some pages, and get into it. As always, let's get right into it. You never know when I'm going to wind up spending 20 minutes talking about the music from a Mario Kart game, so I want to get to as many of your questions as I possibly can. Just as a reminder up front, of course, you can always send me questions at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. And thanks so much to everyone who sent one. I have quite a list of uh, questions that I may answer one day on the show. But even if I never get to your question, um, they're still really cool. They get me thinking about all kinds of things. And um, I'm fascinated by all of the different musical conundrums that all of you out there run into. So listeners at StrongSongsPodcast.com, feel free to write in. So first of all, I want to readdress a question that I raised at the start of my last mailbag episode last month. So a listener wrote in asking, what is that weird shrieking howl sound that plays at the beginning of Guns N' Roses' Welcome to the Jungle? Jungle, which is the opening track from their 1987 album, Appetite for Destruction. It's a sound that's both very distinctive and also kind of mysterious, because I mean, what is that? It's very weird. So my theory, based on nothing other than my own ears, was that this was probably Axl Rose, lead singer of Guns N' Roses, doing something weird with his voice. I kind of recreated it, but couldn't quite get it, but it just sounds like a human voice to me. It doesn't sound like a guitar, and um, that's kind of where I left it. So I put it out to all of you. What do you all think this is? Can you get any more specific than that? Do you have any alternate theories? And I heard from a bunch of people, a bunch of different theories. Some folks think it was a guitar. A couple people think it's some type of a synthesizer, maybe some kind of monosynth. There were a bunch of different theories, and then listener John wrote in with the following. He wrote, There's a terrible thing I've always done with my voice, which is sounding notes while inhaling instead of exhaling, and I think that could be what Axel is up to. You can get some wild tones that way, and I used to wow my friends with this, imitating that bit from the song in the sixth grade. Now, this was immediately kind of convincing to me because you only remember something like that from the sixth grade if you were pretty close to doing the sound on the record. But John also sent in some examples of himself making this sound and, well, I'll just let you listen. Here's John. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my god, imagine being able to make that sound with your voice. So that already pretty convincing to me. John also made a version of this sound where he put it through some effects, sort of similar to what Axel is maybe using on this recording, and it's actually even more convincing. So I think that John has gotten pretty close to what Axel is doing in terms of the sound, and that demonstrates to me that this probably is Axel Rose. That pretty much closes the case on it for me. As to whether or not Axel is singing while inhaling or exhaling, that one I'm a little bit less sure about. It's certainly possible that he's singing while inhaling. This, that does get the kind of sound that John was doing, and we can hear that they're pretty similar sounds. But I also think that just given the range of sounds that people are able to get with their voice, and the range of sounds that Axel in particular was able to get when he screamed, he could also be exhaling and just doing a kind of similar thing with his phonation to get that sort of a sound. Now John has a follow-up question related to that. He writes, What is up with inhaling and singing? I heard once that it's bad for your voice and I've been afraid to look it up, but I think I could take it if you broke the news to me. So this actually raises an interesting question about what Axel is really doing, because I looked into this some and I spoke with my voice teacher about it as well, my voice teacher of many years, Nevada Jones, who was very helpful when it came to learning more about this. So there's a bunch of different ways that you could refer to this technique, singing while inhaling. The term that I found is ingressive phonation, which means that you are ingressive, so it's there is on the way in, and the phonation is the creation of the sound. That's as opposed to egressive phonation, which is most of how we make sound. You exhale past the vocal folds, and that's where you make your sound. Now, it's definitely common wisdom that singing while inhaling is really bad for your voice and is just generally a no-no. I've seen plenty of people, you know, share that opinion online. And I think I'd say, you know, I, I'm certainly not one to give advice here, but it does seem like that's probably not the best thing that you can do. If nothing else, everyone seems to agree that it can really dry your vocal folds out super fast, and that's never good. That's when you start coughing, you start having the kind of tickle in your throat, and that's when you begin having, you know, serious vocal fatigue that can over time lead to damage to your voice. So you always want to be careful about anything that dries your vocal folds out, and inhaling can really do that. So like I said, this is a little bit outside of my area of expertise, but I do think that it's a really interesting question, and I've been learning a little bit more about that style of singing, that really intense scream that some vocalists can get. You know that really small, really focused and high scream that you'll often hear in black metal and screamo in that style of really heavy music with the super high, thin scream on top of it. Like when I listen to, say, Randy Blythe from Lamb of God. Or George Clark from Deaf Heaven, a really cool band that I've been getting into lately. He can definitely make some sounds like this. So, you know, I don't know these guys personally and can't say that every single person who sings in that style and makes that sound is singing while exhaling, as usual, and not while inhaling. I'm pretty sure that they're all singing while exhaling. There's this really cool vocal coach named Melissa Cross. She's pretty well known in hard rock, heavy metal circles. She's the vocal coach for a lot of really big singers because she's the master of the scream and she teaches people all these different ways to scream. She has a bunch of YouTube videos up that are kind of her demonstrating the different ways that you scream. I'll link to one of them in the show notes. They're fun to watch, and they kind of get into some of the mechanics of how you make some of those screaming sounds. In order to learn the false chord scream, 
you need to learn how to make the sound in the true vocal folds and to carefully lift the false vocal folds without tension. They're all done exhaling, though. They're not like, you're not harshly inhaling air across your vocal folds to get a super crazy loud sound. And actually, most people, when they scream like that in bands like Lamb of God or Deaf Heaven, any of that style of band, they're actually usually singing pretty quiet. Like the scream isn't as loud as it seems. The microphone is doing a lot of work. So I don't want to overstep my expertise here because I don't really know how to scream. I've never quite figured it out. It would be pretty cool to talk to someone like Melissa Cross about it or to learn more about it just because it's an intersection of a lot of things that I find interesting. But to answer your question, John, I think if you're occasionally doing this as a trick just for your friends, it's probably not a big deal. But no, generally speaking, it's probably not the best idea. Like there are certainly ways that you can do it and probably have it be safe, but there's also a lot of ways that you can do it and hurt your voice. You want to be careful doing something like that too much, though I do appreciate that you recorded that example for us, and I don't think it's such a big deal if you do it every now and then. So thanks for sending that in, John. That was a lot of fun. Take it away, Axel. Charlie writes, one of my favorite tunes from 2021 was Hold Yourself by the wonderful band Tune Yards. I'm especially intrigued by the harmony vocals and how the singer Meryl Garbus adds new layers of vocal tracks in each iteration of the chorus. Man, this is a killer tune with a killer groove, and there's three main vocal parts going here in the middle of the song on the chorus, the lead in the middle, the really high part on the left, and a lower part over on the right. Okay, so remember those vocal parts because we'll come back to them. Let's get back to Charlie. So Charlie writes, I'm reminded of your episode on Imogen Heap's Hide and Seek when you were talking about how thick the voices sounded during all that close harmony that was keyboard generated in the later parts of that song. My question is about the final chorus of Hold Yourself by Tune Yards. Does Garbus use a unique or unusual vocal arrangement in the final chorus to get this big, thick sound that they're getting? I know there's some interesting stuff going on in other parts of this song, but I I can't quite pick out the close harmonies or figure the chorus out. Okay, so we already heard a middle chorus where there are those three vocal harmony parts in. Let's listen to that first. So now I'm going to transition into the way that they sing the chorus at the end. They've definitely added some stuff. It's a bigger sound. And I'm curious what you'll hear if you just listen and see what you hear. Okay, here we go. So it's a much denser sound on that final chorus. There is that sort of density and richness. I get what Charlie is asking about, but the thing is, this isn't actually vocal arranging that's getting them that sound. So I mentioned those three-part harmonies. This tune is in the key of F, and there's some really cool, really pretty classic three-part vocal harmonies going on that second chorus. So these chords, we got a kind of three-chord vamp going here on the chorus. It starts on F, the one chord, then it goes up to two major, to a G major chord, and then to a B flat, the four chord, and then back to one. So you get this really groovy, really nice three-chord chord progression. One, to two, to four, back to one. 
So over that, we've got three-part vocal harmonies. The lead part in the middle sounds like this. So we will hold ourselves now. Then with the lower part on the right. So we will hold ourselves now. And the high part on the left. Okay, so that's just the three-part vocal harmony that they did on the second chorus. What is it that makes the third chorus, that final chorus, sound so much bigger? The answer, which makes me predictably happy, is that it's actually the horn section. So Charlie, you can probably make out the horns pretty clearly when they play that riff in between phrases. So that's a very clear horn riff, but when they're not playing that riff, the horns are doing something else, a pretty cool horn technique that's kind of hidden horns, I guess you could call it, where they're just holding an F. They're in unison, in perfect unison. They're all playing an F in the same register, just giving us this steady one, just this tone in unison, and then every so often breaking, just putting it right back there to the point that it kind of blurs out of focus. It blends into the background and just adds to the kind of soupy sauce that's going on with all of these vocal parts in and creates a really nice mix with the vocal arrangement. I hope that you're starting to hear it. I think that once you do hear it, it becomes easier to hear it and actually probably becomes easier to pick that technique out in other recordings too, because it's a pretty widely used technique where the horns go from this very clearly articulated melody, you know, a riff, um, a horn part, to just blending into the background and even kind of performing some obfuscation where they blend in with the vocals and just richen up and kind of complexify the overall harmonic range because they're all in the same register and horns, of course, being wind instruments have a somewhat vocal timbre to begin with. So it's a really cool technique when you use a horn arrangement to actually blend in with the vocals and create that kind of sound. So that's what they're doing there. It's not a vocal technique. It's a horn technique and a very clever arranging technique. I hope that helps you hear a little bit more, Charlie. And man, Tune Yards, what a great band. Actually, just a little interjection here to uh, talk about that groove really quick and to plant a seed for a future upcoming episode of Strong Songs. So that's a pretty good groove on this track, right? On Hold Yourself. It's got this certain pulse to it, this certain swing. Really just kind of gets you moving your body. When I heard that groove, it kind of stuck out to me as being kind of distinct. And that's because it reminded me of the meters, specifically the sissy strut groove popularized by Zigaboo Modaleste, the drummer for the meters in their tune Sissy Strut in the late 1960s. It's a pretty cool groove and it's one that you'll hear a lot.
So that's what I was hearing when I listened to this Tune Yards tune, but I decided to run it over to my buddy Russ Kleiner, an amazing, amazing drummer that I went to school with, and I was like, hey man, listen to this Tune Yards song. Do you kind of hear Sissy Strut in this? And he said, actually, what I hear is Pungy, a different Meters song from a couple years later that has a very, very similar groove, but some of the particulars are different, and I'm hearing a little more Pungy in this groove. So not something that I'm going to go into in great detail right now, but something that I'll be talking about in the future, and I just kind of wanted to plant that seed and make that connection back to the great Zigaboo Modaleste. His grooves just turn up everywhere, including in recent Tune Yards recordings. Valerie writes, longtime listener, second time emailer, I would love to hear your opinion on what makes a piece of music scary. I was inspired after seeing the 1997 anime psychological thriller Perfect Blue. The soundtrack of the film is perfect in making the audience feel as weird as the characters are feeling. One particular piece I wanted to highlight was Virtua Mima. It's mainly a vocal track and it still gives me chills whenever I listen to it. So Valerie's question is, what is it about this track and horror soundtracks in general that have the ability to scare us? So I love this topic because it really gets into why music affects us the way that it does, and the answer to that question sits at the intersection of a bunch of different things. There are compositional techniques, musical things that composers can use to kind of make music seem unsettling or eerie. There are timbral effects, sounds they can make that kind of trigger responses in the listener. And there's also context, just the fact that this music is associated with something very scary and that causes us to feel fear because music is such a powerful memory agent. It can be so strongly associated with memories and take us back to the place we were when we first heard it. Like when I listen to that piece, Virtua Mima, it's a pretty creepy piece to me, but it's probably not quite as creepy as it is for Valerie because I haven't actually seen Perfect Blue, so I don't have the same associations with the scene that it probably accompanies. So context is a really important part of this, but it's not everything. I do think that there are things that composers can do to add a sort of sense of uncanniness or add a sense of discomfort to their to their music, and I think that horror composers have gotten really good at that, to the point where it's actually kind of impossible to separate out the context from the music. I mean, I've just heard so many of these tricks in so many horror movies that I'll always associate them with horror movies, and I can't separate the two out in my mind. I know I've answered questions about this sort of thing in the past. I remember talking about the Jaws theme, John Williams' Jaws theme, which is a great example of using musical stylistic techniques to convey something scary. In this case, this kind of growing, creeping, stalking dread, those two notes, you know, they're very, they're kind of low, they're sort of ominous, but really it's the way that they speed up and they gradually get faster and faster and faster, and it really conjures this image of a shark swimming across the water of that fin as Jaws comes to get you, but I can't separate that from the scarred images on my mind of the opening scene of Jaws. I mean, I just, I can't tease the two out. So it's really impossible for me to hear the Jaws theme with fresh ears and wonder how I would interpret it.
So what John Williams is doing is a purely compositional trick. He's just making the music gradually speed up in this way that really works. It really calls to mind a hunter circling its prey, getting faster and faster as it draws closer to the kill. There are other compositional tricks you can use as well to convey feelings of disorientation or fear. So for example, in Virtua Mima, there's this really weird loop going on in the vocals where the vocals start and then stop and then start again and it sounds like a tape player, like a malfunctioning tape player that's kind of kicking back to the start of each loop. There's this unsteady kind of keening quality to it And above all else, it's relentless. It feels unsteady, off balance, and it kind of keeps coming at you over and over and over again. I think that that quality, that kind of relentless, unsteady feeling, it's sort of a neutral thing in composition. You don't have to be creepy if you're writing music that sounds like that, but it can really effectively underscore a scene of some presence or something coming for you. You know, I can kind of use my imagination to imagine a scene that might accompany this music and how that feeling of relentless repetition, the way you kind of can't escape those keening tones that are going, like that can create a very claustrophobic and trapped feeling. So I do think the music is good for underscoring a scene that's doing that, but it doesn't have to evoke that feeling. I think it just could be used effectively if you kind of pair it with visual you know, with a film that's showing a scene with that going on. So it's really kind of an intersection of those two things. The musical techniques are being used to reinforce the context in which the music is being used, and between the two of them, that's creating a very powerful impact on an audience member. Now there is another element of this that I think Valerie is kind of getting at that I do want to mention, and that's that sometimes music can have timbral elements that are shared with things in the natural world that we're sort of evolutionarily tuned to be afraid of, like what's called nonlinear sounds or primal screams from animals. We find those very upsetting on a deep level. Or actually, I would say that Virtua Mima kind of sounds like the buzzing of bees. So that gets a little bit more into evolutionary psychology, not something that I'm an expert in, but it sort of makes sense to me as a theory for why some things might sound inherently frightening or unsettling. You know, some of the crying later in this piece sounds a little bit like baby cries, and we're sort of evolutionarily attuned to the crying of a baby for obvious reasons. We really pay attention when we hear something that sounds like a baby crying. You know, look, I'm a jazz saxophonist here talking about evolutionary psychology, so what do I really know about any of this? Like, yeah, I think that pizzicato strings can sometimes sound kind of like creepy crawlies. Whether it's the timbral, non-linear aspects of the sound, or the musical compositional tricks that are being used, or just the context in which we first heard it, all of that is so interesting because it gets at why we feel the way we feel when we listen to a given piece of music. So those are really just some of my thoughts on the matter. I hope that gives you at least some food for thought, Valerie. Um, you know, it's, it's just this weird, complicated intersection between compositional tricks like the weird, unsteady, relentless way that this music repeats, the fact that it is just associated with the scene that you first heard it alongside, and then just the fact that it kind of sounds like a baby crying next to a hornet's nest, which is sort of upsetting. 
Also, this music is really cool. I guess I have to go see Perfect Blue now. Thanks in advance for the nightmares, Valerie. On last month's Q&A episode, I also got a question about playing instruments while left-handed, which I thought was really interesting, but also I couldn't really answer it as well as I'd like because I'm not left-handed, I'm right-handed, and as a result, I can't really speak firsthand to what it would be like to play left-handed. So I gave some kind of broad thoughts, but also just opened it up to listeners to write in and share their experience of being left-handed. And I heard from several of you, and I just wanted to share what a few people wrote in. Ben wrote, I won't be able to help you much on the personal experience of the question. I am a left-handed writer and athlete, but I play guitar, banjo, trombone, and use a computer right-handed. But a couple fun factoids I learned about some famous left-handed guitarists. The great and underrated Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits, like me, is left-handed, but he plays his guitar right-handed, though admittedly I cannot finger-pick like he does. Jimi Hendrix played a regular guitar upside down and left-handed, but he restrung it so that the strings would be the same, with the high strings farther away from him and the bigger low strings close to him. However, the awesomely talented blues giant Albert King not only played guitar upside down and left-handed like Hendrix, but he also never bothered to restring the instrument, so he essentially played it upside down. And I'll just add here that Albert King rules, and this is why he was called the Upside Down Man, because he played a right-handed guitar left-handed, which meant the strings were upside down. So when they say nobody played guitar like Albert King, they literally mean nobody played guitar like Albert King. Related to that, Connor wrote in, I'm a left-handed person, my main instruments are guitar and saxophone, but I picked up mandolin during COVID lockdown. As someone who plays left-handed guitar, I found it annoying when I couldn't just pick up any guitar and start playing, so I decided to buy a right-handed mandolin, but play it upside down. That's handy because the strings now for me on the mandolin from the top down go E-A-D-G. They're in different octaves, but who cares? I didn't have to learn new chord shapes when moving from guitar to mandolin. A very interesting mandolin hack there from Connor. Um, I don't really play mandolin, but that kind of makes sense to me, and it's sort of a funny way around the differences between the guitar and the mandolin. Phil writes, I am totally left-handed, but I had to learn guitar right-handed, as all I had was a $20 guitar and to learn to play guitar volume one book. There was no money for lessons when I was a kid. I didn't know how to swap the strings over, so I had to teach myself right-handed. As it turns out, playing right-handed has been much better for me because most guitarists are right-handed, and if I'm at someone's house or at a random jam or a gig, I can just jump straight in and play it on a borrowed instrument. That's not so easy if you can only play a left-handed instrument. Also, it's much easier to buy right-handed guitars. I also feel that my fretting hand, my left hand, does what I consider to be the harder work, so playing right-handed gives me a better start. I also play bass, so my fretting hand can be tackling large gaps between the strings and the frets, and my stronger hand is the one doing this work. I think that that's really interesting, because as I would imagine it, 
I mean, I think you could make the argument that either hand for a guitar player is doing more complicated work. Certainly, they both have to be able to do a lot, but it is kind of different. And I could see the argument that the left hand, the one on the fretboard and a standard right hand held guitar, is the one actually doing more complicated work than the right hand. Probably depends on the style that you're playing, but I could see that. And I certainly struggle with my left hand on bass, my weaker hand, being the one that has to make big jumps on those huge strings. Very difficult for me, so I understand why Phil might find that to be an advantage. Okay, the last email I want to read comes from Fleming. Fleming writes, I am an ambidextrous drummer, and I have been playing open-handed for the last 20 years. And just to interject here, if you remember, I talked about open-handed drumming, which means that you're typically the hi-hat is over on the left and the snare drum is on the right. And if you're playing playing cross-handed, your right hand is reaching across to hit the hi-hat, and your left hand is underneath the right hand um, with the stick hitting the snare drum. And that's why when you picture a drummer, they're kind of crossing their hands in that, you know, if you're just playing like a standard rock beat on a hi-hat. Open-handed drumming means that your left hand is hitting the hi-hat on the left side, and your right hand is hitting the snare on the right, so your sticks aren't crossed, they're open, which changes the way that that you drum in some ways that Fleming lays out. So he writes, I have a few thoughts on playing open-handed because there are definitely pros and cons to this technique. The pros, one, you have a lot of feel when you're playing pockets since you're completely relaxed. It's extremely intuitive and very fun. And two, you have all the power in the world. You have more power on the snare and the hi-hat, which arguably is not an advantage 95% of the time, but when you really want to rock, it's awesome. However, the angles of attack on the hi-hat and the snares are quite different, so you wear down your sticks much faster than a traditional cross technique. That's very interesting and makes sense to me. So Fleming lists two cons. The first con is, playing the sizzle on the ride cymbal on the floor tom is very hard when you're playing open-handed. You end up crossing your arms in a very uncomfortable way. The best hack is to switch the position of your ride and crash cymbal so the ride cymbal is behind your hi-hat and position a second floor tom to the left of your hi-hat. It makes for a slightly more elaborate setup, but it solves the main issues of playing open-handed. Generally, you never want to cross your hands when playing open-handed. That makes sense, and it just means, yeah, like the drum set would just have to look different. I've certainly seen setups like this where the toms and the cymbals are over farther to the left of the hi-hat. It just means you're kind of setting the whole thing up differently, but in the end, if you're hitting the drums, right, it doesn't really matter. Okay, back to Fleming. Con number two is certain types of traditional 16th note tom fills are very hard when you're playing open-handed. This is because the geometry of your leading hand and the layout of the drum kit don't really work the same way. So you're moving to the right from the snare to the hanging toms to the floor tom. So if you're continually moving right, but you're leading with your left hand, so you have to clear the right stick out of the way to the next tom. This may not sound like a big deal, but you actually need really good technique to pull this off, because if you're playing a show, the chance of flubbing a fill is terrifying. Therefore, as an open-handed drummer, I tend to avoid traditional 16th note on the beat tom fills and maybe do a triplet fill instead or use polyrhythm so that I can always be leading with my right hand as I go down the toms. At the end of the day, it's actually made my playing more personal, so I'm not mad at it. However, as a young drummer, it really messed with my self-confidence that I couldn't pull off relatively simple fills when the rest of my playing was really good. So that's Fleming, and I totally understand this. That's a little bit technical for anybody who doesn't play drums, but what he's talking about is if you're playing a fill down the toms, you know, crash. Like that's the kind of fill that he's talking about. If you're a beginning drummer, that's the first fill that you learn because 
this is just digga 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 bam. So if you're kind of listening along, just hold your hold your hands like you're holding drumsticks right now, right? And if you are going to the right, so picture the way a drum set works. You go digga digga on the snare, then digga digga on a tom, then digga digga on the next one, and then digga digga far over to the right on the floor tom, right? So if you imagine doing that, it's a lot easier to do that if the first hit on each drum is done with your right hand. And the reason for that is that means that the final of the four hits will be done with your left hand, which frees your right hand up to move really naturally down kind of down the row to the next drum to the right. And since you're moving to the right all the time, you always want to be doing the last hit with the left hand so that your right hand can move on down the line. However, that totally gets mixed up if you have, say, a crash cymbal over on the left to the left of your hi-hat, because then suddenly you want to be leading with the left hand first, but then in order to do that, you have to reach across as you go down the way that Fleming describes. So at the end of each set of four notes, your left stick is reaching across your right stick, which totally increases the difficulty and the chance that your sticks are going to hit together in midair, you're going to drop one, it makes it way harder to do, and is kind of tricky. I really like the fact that this forced Fleming to actually play more interesting rhythms. He had to play triplets, because if you play three notes, that changes up the way that you have to move. And it's just a really interesting drummer thing that anyone listening to this who plays drums will be just very familiar with this kind of logistical, physical problem. There's a lot of this kind of physical problem solving when it comes to playing the drums that doesn't really exist with most other instruments because most other instruments don't let you totally rearrange them however you want and then have to navigate such a large physical space while playing them. So I'll talk more about drumming later this year. I'm going to get back to talking some more about drumming on the show because it's such an interesting and fundamental musical skill, but I thought that was really cool. Thanks Fleming for writing in and sharing. Let's keep things drum-centric. we got another couple of questions about drums. First one comes from Ben. Ben writes, In Hypnotized by Notorious B.I.G., at the end of every second bar, there's a sound kind of like a person going, Mmm. Do you know what that instrument is? I can't track it down in the credits, and it's not in the original sample, Rise by Herb Alpert. Well, let's listen and see what we can hear. This is Hypnotize by Notorious B.I.G., and I dare you not to nod your head along with this groove. Okay, here's the sound. You hear it? It's going to come up again. Listen for it. Mm. What is that? So that sound is probably familiar to a lot of percussionists out there, in particular anyone who's done any hand drumming or played any Latin percussion. That is a glissando played across the head of a hand drum, typically known as a moose call or a delizado. I believe this is a conga drum, but it could be a number of different drums. But it's it's a technique that hand drummers use where you wet your index finger or middle finger, or you maybe put beeswax on it, and you hit the drum and slide your finger across the surface of the drum, across the skin of the drum head, and it makes this Mm, kind of a sound. It's a very distinct sound. Here's percussionist Sean Rivera demonstrating it. Mm, 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 mm. 
So I'm not sure where Biggie is getting that sound, whether it's a sample, it's something that was on that Herb Alpert record, which I, I didn't hear a moose call anywhere on that record, but it might be somewhere on it. Um, some other sample that they used, it might be part of a drum machine, or maybe there was just somebody in the studio with them with a conga drum and they just recorded the sound themselves. Whatever the original source, that's what that is. It's a moose call or a delizado, a glissando across the skin of a conga drum's head. And just one distinctive element of a really distinct and really killer groove. Ross writes, Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard is my favorite Paul Simon song. That's a good choice, Ross. It's, uh, it's up there for me, too. He continues, Every time I hear it, I always wonder what is making that strange, muffled, squeaking sound you can hear intermittently in the background during the recording. It's most prominent during the whistling solo and in the last 30 seconds of the song. I'm not sure if Paul Simon is making the noise with his mouth or using some kind of instrument in an unusual way to create the effect. It's an inconsequential aspect of the song, but I wonder why he put the noise on the track in the first place. Every time I hear it, I cannot help wondering what it is, and I would probably miss it if it weren't there. Just wondering what your thoughts might be. All right, well, let's listen. This is me and Julio down by the schoolyard, and I think you'll immediately hear what Ross is asking about. Mama pajama rolled out of bed and she ran to the police station. So that's a sound that'll be familiar to longtime listeners because I believe that I've answered a question about this before. But yeah, why not answer it again? Because it's a very cool sound and I know that it does leave some people kind of flummoxed. What is that sound that over there on the right? What on earth could that be? It sounds kind of like a person, but not quite like a person. So that is in fact a drum, and it's actually sort of related to the moose call on the conga that we were talking about before, because this drum is generating this tone not by someone actually hitting it, the way that you normally hit a drum head, but through friction, the same way that a that a percussionist might generate a moose call by sliding their finger across the drum head of a conga to get that friction sound. This drum actually generates it very similarly, just using a different mechanism. So the drum in question is called the cuica. This is a Brazilian drum commonly used in a lot of samba music. You've almost certainly heard it if you've listened to very much bossa nova or music from the 60s and 70s that came out of Brazil. It's a beguiling and iconic instrument. I mean, the second you hear one of these things, you know that sound. And everyone who probably heard that example was like, I do know that sound, but I'm not totally sure what it is. So that's what it is. It's a cuica. You play it by putting your hand in through the base of the drum, and then you kind of pull on this sort of little rod that creates the friction that then creates the tone. So as you pull it, it kind of slides up and down in pitch. The sound is actually not dissimilar from the sound you can get as you're polishing glass. If you've ever been polishing some kinds of glass, like window panes, you'll start to kind of hear it as your as your polishing rag dries out. You'll get a kind of a similar sound, and it's the same kind of resonance and the same kind of friction. It's just being, you know, consciously applied to a drum. So I'm putting a link for a video description of the Cuica down in the show notes. You should totally check it out. It's a cool instrument, a good one to know about. And yeah, Paul Simon, he's always drawing from interesting sounds like that to make his song sound just just a little bit more distinct, you know, from other songs. And I love the way that he uses the cuica on this tune, which I just love in general. What a great song. 
really gets that thing talking at the end. I'm pretty sure that's Ayerto Moreira, the percussionist who played on this record. And um, yeah, cool drum. Kathleen writes, I just heard a song that I wasn't previously familiar with called Diamond Girl by Seals and Crofts. It really tweaked at my brain, and I think it was because it reminded me a lot of Miles Davis's So What? Can you listen to it and tell me if you hear what I hear? Sure, Kathleen, I can do that. This is Diamond Girl by Seals and Crofts, and let's see if we can hear what Kathleen is hearing. (laughs) Well, Kathleen, I certainly hear it, so don't worry. This isn't just your imagination. So just for reference, for any of you who didn't listen to the entire episode that I did about Miles Davis's So What, here's the melody to Miles Davis's So What and see if you can hear what Kathleen is hearing. So yeah, I would say that the intro to the Seals and Crofts tune is deliberately borrowing from So What. It's such a similar figure. The rhythmic and harmonic figures are so similar. It's kind of a quote to me. Like it feels like a little knowing wink to any jazz fans that they had listening to them, which given their overall sound, there are probably quite a few jazz fans that listen to Seals and Crofts. So they're in different keys, so what is in D, and Diamond Girl is in A, but they're doing something super similar. So it's this kind of Dorian sound where you do this hit where there's kind of a pedal tone, let's say in so what, it's a D, there's a D in the bass, and it goes four down to one minor. So you've got a G and a B down to an F and an A. And then you put it in that rhythmic figure, so you go, and you kind of do that hit, and that's, I mean, that's the whole sound of So What. It's a really iconic sound. Those harmonies moving in that rhythm in that exact way. So move that into the key of A and just make it a kind of a D to A minor thing. You've got pretty much the same sound and that's exactly what Seals and Crofts is doing on the intro to Diamond Girl. Like, you can practically hear Paul Chambers' bass line working with this figure. (laughs) Okay, now I actually want to pause and go back a couple of questions yet again to that conga drum sound that I was talking about just a couple of minutes ago, because did you hear that over on the left? Listen again. Right here on the left. (laughs) The percussionist is totally doing a moose call on the conga, and I promise this is a coincidence. I did not put these questions in this order so that I would have something to reinforce that conga moose call question from just a couple minutes ago. It just so happens that this worked out, and I'm kind of cracking up here in the studio, realizing just how widely used that sound is. So Kathleen, I hope this helps you feel like you're not crazy. You're definitely not. In fact, your ears are working just fine. You're really hearing some of those harmonic connections, and that's a good pull to make that connection, because it's the same harmony to the point where I would even say that the Seals and Crofts song is a deliberate tribute to the Miles Davis tune from 15 years earlier. 
Jonathan writes, there's something I've been meaning to ask about that I'd love to hear you talk about on the show. There's a Twitter account called at MelodyBot3456, which randomly generates a short piece of music every hour composed of a random time signature, key signature, tempo, rhythm, and instrument. The results are generally not particularly pleasant to listen to, but for some reason I still find it sort of fascinating. Maybe it's the possibility that one day it'll spit out an incredible piece of music by sheer random chance. Anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Is there any real value in randomly generated music? Well, to start with, let's just listen to a couple of selections by the great composer at MelodyBot3456. Alright, that's a pretty straightforward one. Let's listen to something that's a little bit weirder. Okay, so pretty weird use of the guitar wah sound there. Let's listen to one more for good measure. All right, well, MelodyBot3456 generates new music all the time, and I certainly haven't listened to all of it, but I'd say that gives a pretty good sense of what this uh, random generator is coming up with musically. And yeah, I think this is an interesting question. So for starters, you say, is there any real value in randomly generated music? And of course there is. I mean, what is value, right? It's kind of in the ear of the beholder. And Jonathan, you yourself said that you find it fascinating and you kind of listen with the hopes that maybe one day it'll just happen to toss out Furelies or something, you know, some amazing, beautiful piece of music. And I think that alone is pretty cool. Like, it's kind of fun to just return to this thing every so often and see what it's come up with. Like, that is kind of cool. It's a little bit like looking at a creature in a zoo. Like, it's not exactly artistic appreciation, but it is kind of fun to watch this little algorithm try to come up with music and to see what it comes up with. Now, this raises some pretty abstract philosophical questions. Chief among them, what is music? Because, I mean, is this music? Is it not music? What is it that makes music music? I'm not a philosopher, and I can't really answer those questions. I guess I can speak to to my own preferences and my own understanding of music. For me, this is pretty far from the kind of music that I'd want to listen to, because human expression is at the center of what I love about music. I think that music allows humans to communicate things that go beyond language, right? It's this incredible, deep, profound thing that we can make music and then others can listen to it, and they can hear some spark of our own human creativity in that music without any words being required. No matter how many words I may spill on this podcast, there are aspects of music that go beyond language, and I think that's like a really profound, really beautiful form of human communication. But if you remove the person from the equation and you just have a machine generating tones, that can certainly be beautiful. And I think that as machine learning and AIs get more advanced, we are eventually going to have, you know, a machine learning artificial intelligence that can write a really beautiful piece of music that probably already exists. Um, I'm not super caught up on, you know, what's going on in the world of machine learning, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if there are artificial intelligences out there that could compose perfectly beautiful music, like music that could work just fine behind a commercial or something that just synthesizes a bunch of different ideas and is passably human sounding. 
I think that that's really interesting. It raises a lot of really big questions about the nature of art. And I think they're questions that we are, as a community of human beings and of artists, going to have to really wrestle with over the next few decades as artificial intelligence gets better at making art that's essentially indistinguishable from art made by human beings. But then again, that's not really what Jonathan is asking about. So it's a slightly easier road to talk about randomly generated music, which is quite a bit different. And that's kind of what MelodyBot is doing. So I don't have a lot of use for it as something that I would listen to. But random generation can actually be a very useful tool when used by a human being, by a musician or an artist, to provide a kind of a jumping off point or a way of shaking up your existing ideas. That can be really cool. And that's not that dissimilar from just sitting down at the piano and letting your fingers fall on some keys and seeing what notes come out and then trying to write a melody out of it or beginning to play and just grabbing the knobs on the delay pedal and kind of turning them at random and seeing what kind of a sound you get and then playing with that. Like there can be an element of randomness to music, even if it's not being generated by a machine. So I totally don't see why you couldn't use randomly generated musical elements as an idea generation tool or as a way to shake up what you're working on. So that's yet another value that I, I think a musician could get out of this. So yeah, there's totally value in this kind of thing. It's also just kind of a fun experiment because you do never know when it's going to happen. You know, maybe it'll just happen one day if MelodyBot spits out enough melodies, one of those melodies is going to be genuinely incredible. It does seem like at some point that has to happen. So I guess we'll see. I'm not on Twitter anymore, so I can't follow the account, but I'm sure people will let me know if MelodyBot ever cranks out something truly good. Okay, our final question comes from Brendan. Brendan writes, I have been fascinated for years with the power, range, and precision of many of Bono's vocal performances, especially but not exclusively from the late 80s and the early 90s. Yet Bono himself has been slagging off his own voice for years. There's a fascinating moment in the Joshua Tree documentary, for example, where he looks deeply uncomfortable as Daniel Lenoir praises him. Recently, at 61, with his voice inevitably aged, he has said that he dislikes his earlier performances and has only just become a singer. I think that this take, while interesting, is nonsense. And while I understand that it may come from the restlessness and insecurity that drives artists to improve, it got me thinking about the larger question of artists sometimes being the worst judges of their own work. I was wondering if you have any thoughts about that idea. Acknowledging the subjectivity involved in all art, and acknowledging that creators are often their harshest critics, are you ever left scratching your head and feeling absurd as if you, as a fan, appreciate things more than the artist does? If so, do you also wonder what that says about the creative process in general? So this is a huge and fascinating question. It's a topic I've certainly thought about a lot. I think anybody who likes art or who makes art has probably thought about it because it's not only about the subjectivity of the experience of art, but it's also about the subjective experience of the artist, of the person who made the art. And I do think there's something really interesting there that you can only really understand if you've ever made something creative yourself and like tried to evaluate it objectively and realized how impossible that is. So it's certainly true that a lot of musicians and artists in any medium are very critical of their own work. Um, I'm certainly extremely critical of my own work, and that only gets more pronounced over time. I mean, if I'm 10 years away from a song that I wrote and recorded and I listen back to it and I don't hate it, that's usually what I'll say. I'll be like, you know, 
I don't hate it, so that's it means it's probably pretty good. But that doesn't have any bearing on how most people hear it. And I think that the reason for that is that I know what happened behind the scenes. I see through the whole thing all the way down to the studs because I'm the one who made it. And that kind of dispels something essential about a work of art. If you made it, if you were just present from conception through execution, through all the drafts and the weird false starts that you made, the edits and the cuts, all the different iterations of it, if you were there for all of that, it's very, very hard to get back into the mindset of someone who doesn't have all that baggage. And it just kind of dispels something essential about the art. I don't really think it's possible to experience art that you made in the same way that someone who had nothing to do with its creation will experience it. That can definitely be alleviated when you're talking about collaborative work. Like when I listen to a band that I might have played in, I can totally appreciate it because there's so many other people contributing. I might hear my own part and, and not like it because, again, I, I was kind of too close to the creation of that part. But it is easier to appreciate the art because it's being made by other people. But when it's something that's really personal, that's really specific to you, that can be pretty challenging to not be so hard on yourself. And your interpretation of that work is just going to be really, really different from anyone else. So it's actually really fitting that you mentioned Bono here because singing, that's about as personal as it gets. And when he's talking about his own singing, I mean, it's just him and his voice. And as I'm sure a lot of you out there know, we all have a really fraught and weird relationship with our own voice. If you've ever listened to a recording of yourself, if you don't normally do that, it can be very strange. It takes a lot of practice being able to hear your own voice. It's kind of uncanny because you can hear the mind behind the voice when it's your voice, right? There's this layer of artifice because you know what you were thinking when you were saying what you were saying and you weren't necessarily thinking exactly what you were saying. And it just creates a very weird kind of disorienting thing. That's certainly true with singing. If you've ever sung and listened to yourself, it probably sounds very very strange. And at some point, you kind of just have to take it on faith that other people don't hear your singing the same way that you do, because how could they unless they're mind readers? So I guess Professor X never likes anybody's singing because he knows what they were thinking when they were singing, and it's just too weird for him. But everybody else is not a mind reader and is going to hear that singing very differently than the person who did the singing. So it totally makes sense to me that Bana would be hypercritical of his own voice. And that's totally his right. I mean, that's a very valid way to feel. Most artists feel that way about their art, and it doesn't invalidate the way that other people feel about it. It's just an, it's an illustration of the very different relationship that artists have with their own work compared with the relationship that the audience may have. So a really big topic, something that there's no right answer to. I could talk about this forever. Really just something I wanted to leave you all with at the end of this episode as we all go off to ponder music and art and what meaning we may all find from it. That'll do it for this latest mailbag episode. Thank you to everybody who wrote in. And as always, if you want to write me an email with a musical question, something you think might be fun for me to read on the show, send it to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. Thank you so much, as always, to all of the supporters of this show, especially everybody over on Patreon. If you go and sign up to become a patron of the show, you get some cool bonus stuff. You can be a DJ for the listening club in the Strong Songs Discord. And of course, you can get access to the bonus feed where I put little mini 
mini episodes um, with extra stuff that I didn't get to in the episode. We've had some Cars stuff this year, some more Beatles covers. I'm going to do some more Zelda music, actually, uh, this next week in the bonus feed. So if you want to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash strong songs to sign up. And of course, you can also just send a one-time donation to the PayPal link that's down in the show notes. Thank you so much to everybody who supports Strong Songs. You're making it possible for me to keep doing this, and I love doing this. Also down in the show notes, you can find links for the Strong Songs Discord, where you should totally come and hang out and talk about music, as well as the Strong Songs store, social media stuff, playlist, newsletter, and more. This episode's outro soloist is the great Bay Area accordionist Rob Reich, so stick around for Rob, and I'll see you all in two weeks for more Strong Songs. Strong Songs.